0: We are continuing our series on hope, and we are exploring hope for really two reasons. One, I want us to understand our name. We're Hope Presbyterian Church. But more importantly, I want us to embody our name. And for that to happen, we need to listen carefully to what God has to say about hope. This morning we are going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. Recently a friend was sharing how Ephesians 4 is such a beautiful portrait of the church. And I agreed, but what I didn't notice is how central hope is to that portrait. And so let's read the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4 this morning to see how hope is central to the church starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called To the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you our rock and our redeemer. And Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we would not merely learn truth, but see and behold and yes, worship Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I am reading the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, Douglas was an American slave. And so every word that he writes in his story bears the weight of profound suffering and injustice. His words are in other words costly words. And I listen carefully to costly words. In our passage this morning, Paul doesn't have to remind us, but he does remind us that he is in prison. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. We are reading mail this morning. Ancient mail. Inspired by God. But mail, nonetheless, written from a man in prison. This means to me that what Paul says and what he did say to us that we just heard is personally costly to him. Every word he writes in this passage bears the weight of suffering. What he is urging us to do, verse 1, is apparently worth dying for. Do you want to know some of the best preaching advice I ever heard? Before you get up and preach, ask yourself this question. Will you and are you willing to take a bullet for what you're about to say? If you are not, you have no business getting up there and preaching. Well, Paul essentially took a bullet for the words that he wrote to us this morning that's one way to look at it so whatever he says I'm going to listen carefully what is he saying he urges us verse 1 if you follow along he urges you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called walk in a A way that is commiserate. Walk in a way that matches the calling to which you have been called. And then in verse 4 of this same passage, he connects our calling to our one hope. It's amazing. In chapter 1, verse 18, he connects our calling with hope yet again. He prays that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, like I just prayed for this sermon, that our eyes of our hearts would be opened and enlightened. Why? So that we would know the hope to which he has called you Our calling when God calls us, yanks us into his people. By grace, when he does that, he gives you a future and certain hope. When you were called to God, you were also given a hope. And what Paul is taking a bullet for this morning is that he's urging us to walk as a church community in a way that matches that hope. It's one thing Paul would say, imagine him writing this letter to us. Yeah, I'm glad you're called hope. I'm even glad that you have hope. But it's an entirely different thing to walk it out in your community. To live it. And what would that look like? Paul paints the picture in the first six verses of our verse, and he gives us five ways. To walk out our calling. To walk out our hope. First, Paul says hope would make us humble. Starting in verse 2. With all humility. He says walk it out with all humility. Hope makes you humble. Why? Because hope filled people are full. They're full. They are not insecure or self-absorbed. They forget about themselves in the presence of God and in the presence of those who are made in God's image. Because they have hope, they don't need to prove themselves in front of anybody anymore. They are free. They are humble. John Dixon in his book, Humilitas recounts a true story that took place in Detroit in the 1930s. Three guys apparently jumped on a bus and harassed, insulted, and threatened a man who was sitting near the back. This man stood up, gave them his business card, and at the stop, walked off the bus. When these three men gathered together to look at the card, they saw the name Joe Lewis, Boxer. This was in the 30s. Joe Lewis was a world champion boxer for 12 years. Years, 12 straight years, 37 to 49. Apparently, he is listed above Muhammad Ali as the world's greatest boxer of all time. Dixon writes Here is a man of immense power and skill, capable of defending his honor with a single devastating blow. Yet, he chooses to forego his status and hold his power for others. In this case, For some very fortunate young men. This reminds me of how Paul describes. Our Lord Jesus in Philippians 2. He says though he was God. He did not think equality with God. Something to cling to. Instead he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. And was born as a human being. Jesus was humble. When Paul says walk out your hope. With all humility, he has in mind Jesus, who did not use his power or his authority to flaunt himself or to prove himself. He was the He was the perfect. He was fully God and fully man. Therefore, he was the perfect human. And perfect humanity looks like someone who is free from trying to prove themselves and to flaunt themselves. And instead, he used all the power and authority that was given him to serve others. That's humility. It's knowing your place in front of God and in front of God's image bearers. If Jesus is your certain hope, the scriptures anticipate that you will, step by step, lose the excruciating burden. Of trying to prove your worth in front of others. You don't have to blurt answers in class anymore. You don't have to name drop with others. You don't have to dominate a room. You don't have to have the last word or the best word. Instead you are free to make much of God and others. That's what hope does. It makes us humble. It also makes us Gentle, He says, with all humility and gentleness, closely related to humility, I think is gentleness. Hope makes you gentle. Or what some translations call meek. Now, I like that word meek, but that word has fallen on hard times because people automatically assume that meek means weak. But listen to how John Stott defines meekness. He calls it strength under control. Joe Lewis was not only humble, but was meek. People with real power and strength can be meek or gentle. This word was the word used to describe war horses. War horses were wild and they were strong. But a warhorse that was meek had self-control and listened and, and reacted to the sensitive touch of their master. Meek is not weak. It's strength under control. I had a friend in high school named Max. Now he was what some have called farm strong. Okay, he was a big guy. And when he shook your hand... Do you know this type? He tried to crush it. He tried to. There's a little twinkle in his eye. I have friends, and they happen to be in this church, who are stronger than Max. But when they shake my hand, they do not try to crush it. They offer a meek handshake. Do you see it? Hope makes you meek. God gave you a sure resurrection hope. You don't need to show off. Instead, it makes you gentle with others. The third thing that would happen if we walked out our hope and would be patience. Paul says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Patience. Paul's picture here of patience is not a puny patience, like how it feels when you're waiting for slow Wi-Fi, which is what I think of when I hear the word be patient. That's not what Paul has in mind. In fact, a better way to understand what Paul has in mind is this. Patience is staying faithful against all circumstances. It's not jumping ship. When you think you have every reason to jump ship. That's patience. That's not puny. We're faithful to God through our patience. We're faithful to others through our patience. In fact, Paul says in another letter, Colossians chapter 1, verse 11, that this kind of patience is impossible, humanly speaking. Listen to what he says. He says, He prays that we would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. For what? For endurance and patience and joy. We need to be empowered by God himself in order to stay faithful to him and others. Especially others. I learned this recently, but there is a Czech theologian named Tomas Halik. And he says that patience is the difference between faith and atheism. (laughs) Maybe that hasn't happened yet. Let me explain. He says atheists are fundamentally impatient. Or as Ben Myers puts it, atheists want to resolve doubt instead of endure it. Their experience of God's absence is a truthful experience. Shared also by believers. Faith is not a denial of all of this. It is a patient endurance of the ambiguity of this world. And the experience. Of God's absence. God is never absent truly. But we experience. A feeling of absence. The psalmist cries out, why are you sleeping? You could say hope enables patience even with God. We wait. That's what hope is. We wait upon his promise. And we're not just to be patient with God, but also each other. Hope gives us a future vision of Those sitting next to you right now, it's likely those sitting next to you are in your family. And then if you go down the the aisle a little bit, there's probably some church friends. And if you look across the room a little bit, you'll probably see church acquaintances. Folks, you know, that are a part of this community, but you don't know that well. Well, listen, hope gives you a future vision for all of those people in your life. It grants you patience with your spouse, with your children. You can see them clothed with glory, sinless and without sickness. You can envision that the Lord assures that it will happen. When Jesus returns, we will be given a new resurrection body that is somehow mysteriously connected to the one we have now, but stripped of sin and sickness. And we will shine like the glory we were meant to that Adam and Eve must have before they sinned. And we are given with this hope and ability to look behind the eyes of our spouse and see that future glory. Or look at the, behind the eyes of our child when they're acting up, maybe. And see them gloriously resplendent in God's presence. I like to sometimes envision my boys at their wedding day. And that changes the way I parent, let me tell you. Hope enables us to go even further. To imagine the day when Jesus returns. Which if that does not give you patience, nothing will. Hope makes you patient. Hope makes you loving. This is the fourth thing. Paul says that hope enables us to bear with one another in love. Verse 3. I'm sorry, the end of verse 2. The word here is echo, which sounds like my favorite candy, by the way echo wafer. That joke's for free. <laughs> this word, Aneko, means putting up with someone who annoys you. Isn't that amazing? How honest the scriptures are. John Krakauer describes what it feels like to be trapped in a tent. During a storm. Sometimes for days, sometimes for weeks. When you're in the back country. It's in an essay he calls... Tent bound. And in this essay, which I recommend you read, apparently everything your tent mate does starts to annoy you. Even the way they turn a page with the book they're reading. I mean, how do you turn a page in an annoying way? Well, you have to be tent bound to find out, I guess. The church can feel this way tent bound. Can't it? can't it? It's the beauty of the church, first of all, that we are all under one tent. That we are different people united under something that transcends so many things that usually divide. But, it's a tent nonetheless. And it can get stuffy in here. And people can sin against us. Or say... Things that are foolish to us or hurtful when they don't mean to. We can start getting annoyed by the way they turn a page. They're not even doing anything wrong. Well, Paul is saying we are united by one hope, which means that when others annoy you and when others sin against you, you have the ability to make allowance. You have the ability to overlook The Proverbs says it's the glory of a man to overlook the sins of another. Paul iterates that in other passages in the New Testament by saying it's love that covers a multitude of sins. We who are forgiven rebels may not be stingy with overlooking sin. I feel I should say that does not mean we overlook sin that's perpetual and it's harming others. There we gently confront. That's another sermon. But we are able to overlook. We are able to bear with one another. In the tent. And finally. Paul finishes up his picture. With unity. Hope makes us. Humble. It makes us gentle. It makes us patient. It helps us put up with each other. But verse 3 tells us it also makes us eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this is no ordinary unity. I had unity at the Delta High School tennis team. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about a God-given and a God-shaped unity. The verses that follow, the verse 3, unpacks the theological grounding, the engine for this unity that he describes. Paul says, in fact, giving it away in verse 3, that we are merely maintaining a unity that has already been given us. We're not, in other words, peacemakers so much as we are peace maintainers. We don't, out of nothing, create unity in this place. We have been given a supernatural, God-given unity. It's our task that in light of that and in light of God's grace, we maintain it. Just read what he says in verse 4. He says, there is one body. Count these ones for an experiment. Count the ones, okay? There is one body and one spirit, just as you recall, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. How many? Seven. Isn't that beautiful? That's the perfect number. Some think this was one of the earliest creeds and confessions of the church. I love picturing churches who are struggling with divisions, confessing this unity, seeing in it a God-given perfection. Every one of these things, the one spirit, the one hope, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, the one God, the Father, all of them are gifts. None of them we deserve. The unity, the oneness that we have is God-given. But more than that, it's also God-shaped. Did you notice that amidst those seven ones, there were three? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Did you see that? God the Spirit. The Lord is God the Son. And God the Father. What this means is that the basis of our unity is the triune God we worship father son holy spirit what this means is that our unity is not a country club unity where we are united by same likes same preferences social status skin color no what this means is that our unity is based on the worship of and the unity from god himself father son holy spirit John Stott says there can be only one Christian family because there is only one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can no more multiply churches than you can multiply God. Is there only one God? Then He has only one church. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the church. Like an Adam, the Godhead. Can't do it. Paul says hopeful people will be eager to maintain this unity. Uh, Josie and I, we went on a date on Friday. This is vital, we've discovered, for maintaining our marriage union. Dating. Men, date your wives. Wives, date your husbands. <laughs> you might say, but Joe, why work on your unity? You are united. You're married. You're wearing a ring. True. <laughs> that is true. And as others have pointed out, a married couple can move to different countries and stop talking. And they would still be married but we would hardly be satisfied with that same with the church we will be eager to maintain the unity that we are given god says you are married to each other maintain that go on dates Go rock climbing. That's what we did. One way to do this is engage in demolition of false walls. Okay? Detect false walls. And here's a good way to do it. What are the standard ways that America loves to divide? What are the standard ways? Just think, get a list in your head. Politics, race, money, education levels. And now, let's intentionally hope Presbyterian church tear down those walls right here and right now we must be hope church in more than just name we need to walk in a way Paul is urging us by his very life urging you this is urgent to walk in a way that is in step with or matches the hope that we have all of us no matter who we are what our stories are all the ways that divide us and make us different we all have the same hope the same future destiny We are all going to the same place. And believe it or not, we are all worshiping together for all of eternity. So why can't we do it now? Now and here. That's the beauty of this picture. A community being gentle with each other, humble with each other, patient with each other, loving or bearing or putting up with one another and maintaining their unity together. One of my favorite musicians, M.C. Taylor, who goes by the name, his golden messenger. He sings, if you carry the good news, show me. He doesn't say, if you carry the good news, tell me. when i hear him sing that i hear him challenging me i hear him challenging us hope if you carry the good news show me that's what your neighbor is asking that's what this nation is asking what an opportunity to be to be a community An outpost of God's kingdom to show the hope that we have to this watching world. May we be a church that wears our hope on our sleeve and walks our hope out in our relationships. Let's not just tell of our hope. Let's show our hope. Jesus, we can't do any of this without you. So we ask that you would work this out amongst your people. In fact, Lord, the more we're aware of our inability to do all this, the more your power is released among us to do this very thing. Holy Spirit, make that work. Make us walk out our hope. We've been given an amazing calling. We want to walk in a way that matches that calling. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.